Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. Yes, this is Leanne Nguyen, your host for the hour. Welcome to Voice America. Um, As the announcer uh, said to you, I have fashioned this show to be a space where we can really speak and hear each other, a conversation where we can connect. I would like for us to connect with what makes life worth living and also a love letter to the beauty and dignity that we people can behold in the face of much ugliness and fear, especially right now. In light of that ambition, you may ask yourselves, well, you should ask, why look at life through trauma? Um, that was one of the questions that a listener um, wrote into me a few weeks ago. Why do I tell you occasionally about trauma? Why? What? What can we take from the experiences of traumatized people? Earlier in the season, I gave a sort of X-ray expose on trauma. The nutshell of that is this. Trauma is the experience, the thing that that breaks down the survival apparatus. You have to forgive my English sometimes. The the machinery, you know, that we have developed and rely on to function and prosper. The thing that breaks apart the assumptions and knowledge that we have acquired or take for granted. Take for granted about ourselves, about the world that we inhabit, about the people and the life that we have cultivated. It's like when you get sick, you realize what your body has been doing well all along. And cancer, an infection, an injury that leads to surgical excision or an amputation, these traumatic blows to the body highlight or pull into focus the things that are essential to our physical survival, the things that our body needs to do for us to be alive, that it's able to perform for us with no fear, no question, no impediment. So, like our body, our psyche, our soul, our emotional, psychological, and spiritual apparatus also needs to do certain things in order for us to survive, to keep functioning and growing as human beings. And so, just like cancer or an infection, trauma reveals for us the things that are essential to our psychic survival. Things that are broken, that collapse when the person goes through an experience which attacks his system, which overwhelms his capacity to cope. An experience that blows apart his belief system, that challenges what he knows and what makes him now extremely vulnerable to another infection. All right? So if cancer reveals to us the presence of toxins around us, and the need for protection and clean nutrients, for example. Trauma reveals to us what we are vulnerable to, what we need, and what we otherwise do well in our existence that tend to, in order to to tend to that survival need. So if, um, if, if I pay attention to trauma, if I want to share what I know, what I have seen of that life, 
of that side of life with you. It's because I'm motivated by health, by my investment in, in life. It's not morbid to listen to pain, to look into death and dying, if the ambition is to live more fully. I want to grasp in order to cherish and protect the things that are vital to our project of being human. It's strange, right, to say that I look into devastated lives as a way to learn about good living and to celebrate life. Well, it's not that strange because I'm going to tell you something. When people find out that I work, um, one part of my work deals with trauma, there's always a reaction. Admiration and interest are the most common. There's something admirable, it seems, about my willingness to do this work. There is certainly something extraordinary about the experience, or so people assume. What is it like? What are these patients like? How do you do it? The people who have gone through trauma and the person who accompanies them in their way back are, it seems to me, somehow elevated to a different status, put into a distinct category by the public. The implicit assumption is that these people stand apart, that they live in a different universe, that they move in a different emotional, moral, and existential world. And the assumption about the clinician is that she is in possession of some knowledge, of some skill that are, that is out of the norms, out of the ordinary. So it is assumed that the person must have experienced something that stands out of the norm, normative range. And it is also assumed that the clinician, the person who has witnessed the journey, must be in possession of some knowledge that can expand and inform and safely, safely challenge our imagination of what it means to be alive, to die and to come back, to survive and thrive. So what I'm saying is that the interest and reactions about lives which have been devastated, uh, in that reaction is contained a deep concern about matters of living and suffering and losing and dying. And the curiosity, the interest, though at a safe, sanitized distance, uh, the interest in trauma speaks of some intuitive collective ambition to grasp what defines a meaningful, healthy existence, to get hold of what makes an intact, beautiful life. Because I think that we all know implicitly that there's no easy answer to get through this life. There's a lot of anxiety and grief and longing about life that I think are not spoken to in the current culture. Because you cannot have joy without acknowledging sorrow. You cannot thrive after an injury or a loss without giving time and space to grief. You cannot reach the light if you don't acknowledge and, and don't let yourself go through or, or behold the darkness that lies in the crack, you know, and the gash that the wound opened. I believe that that is why people are fascinated by psyches which have been ravaged. What is it like carries the next silent request of tell me so that I know how to live my life better? What is it like that other side of life? Tell me so that I know better the contours and landscape of this side of life 
and can learn to navigate it with more care and appreciation. Tell me what these people cannot do or can no longer do so that I know better what I do. Tell me what has died in these people so that I can awaken to what I live for. I think that's what it's about. So today, I would like to tell you, to take that on, to tell you a little bit about lives that have been derailed, about some people whose capacity for these human endeavors has been defeated. I want to talk to you more about the things that we all cherish and do well, but take for granted. I'm going to tell you about, uh, first, about my experience with a patient, a Vietnamese man, whom I worked with, I think, over 15 years ago. I'm going to disguise his identity, of course, and change the details of his life, although you should know that his history is is quite, quote-unquote, ordinary, in that it is typical of countless other stories of Vietnamese refugee men of his generation, and now of countless other men from Congo, Syria, um, parts of the Middle East. I will call him Mr. Lay, a very common Vietnamese name. He was about 60 years old when we met. He had come to the U.S. some 25 years before uh, when the wave of refugees from the Vietnam War was at its heaviest. So uh, Mr. Lay, when he came back to me, uh, when he came to me to start treatment, he had been in and out of, of, of treatment for 10, 15 years. And he came with a typical, you know, diagnosis of chronic post-traumatic stress syndrome and major depression, which is sort of a very typical, to the point of being nonsensical, uh, label that people slap on these patients. Uh, the mental health network was at its wit's end, and, and it was thought that someone who speaks his native language, who knows his cultural background, would be able to make some headway with what was thought um, of as a, a chronic, hopeless case. So a little bit about his backstory. You know, because he had served in the pro-American South Vietnam Army, when the communists took over in 1975, Mr. Lay was sent to a re-education camp. And essentially for four years, he was tortured and forced into labor and, you know, separated from his family. And after his release, he had become a stranger to to his own family who had moved on and um, did not have the capacity to recognize him or to integrate him into their daily lives. After about a year after his release, he left Vietnam. He fled on a boat you know, like many other Vietnamese on a fishing boat, like the one that I went on with my mother. Although the circumstances and intention that he had in that escape were quite different from those of my mother, for whom it was about giving me a future. For him, um, it was quite random. He said that he was wandering on the beach one night looking for some catch that had been discarded by fishermen, and he saw some people running around in the dark towards the water. And so on impulse, he joined them to find out what happened and ended up on their boat and ended up in the U.S. He then he now lived when we met in a room in the Bronx in New York City, subsidized by the government. He could not work because of his quite severe symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress. And he could not be in society because his depression and his inability 
to be with people or, or to be around people. Of course, he had left his wife and children behind. Um, and although there were relatives in the area, he avoided contact with them. So his only sustained relationships and ongoing commitment were with healthcare providers. What did this man look like? What was it like to be with him? This man that I said is typical of his generation of survivors. Well, first of all, the usual stuff, you know, of PTSD, flashbacks and insomnia would make him exhausted, uh, unable to concentrate, unable to engage with anyone for any long period of time. He was very depressed and isolated. You know, he was one of the many men and women that you would see on the subway or at the corner of the bodega with their cigarettes and cup of coffee, looking slightly demented, often muttering to themselves, acting with a mix of, of pleading and defying, acting like they desperately want human contact, yet also, like other humans, think of other humans as as potentially lethal aliens. With me, he was courteous and, and quite formidable, revealing himself to be the educated army man that he once was. But in the entire first year of our relationship, he gave very little of his personal self because the litany of medical and psychiatric complaints to me do not count as personal. He told me nothing about his life in Vietnam or his daily life in the U.S. Instead, he would go into endless exposés and lectures about the futility of what we were doing, about the meaninglessness of his life, the hopelessness of the situation that he was in. So each encounter, each week, was devoted really to defeat uh, my hopefulness and curiosity about his life. I still remember one conversation. Um, it was a variation of the same impassioned expose that I had to endure week after week for a whole year. So I'm, I'm, I, I want to try to capture and paraphrase it for you. He said essentially, you know, and in our native language, so it carried even more force for me. I cannot be with anyone. My family does not know me anymore. Nobody can understand me. What is there that I can talk about with people? It's a joke. I can't talk about work, stress, money trouble, family trouble. I have none of these things. I have no life. My mind goes round and round with thoughts about what happened. I go crazy with this lonely conversation. I can't keep it quiet inside, but I can't share that with anyone outside either. So I just sit in the park and talk to the air. I know that people think I'm a crazy old man but I'm really just crazy with loneliness. But you know, as lonely as he was, he would defeat all of my attempts to connect with him. No question, please, he would say. You are wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I have lived through. There's nothing that anybody can do for me, he said. No was the stance, the theme of our process of being with each other. No. Don't try. No, don't hold out any hope for me. No, you don't understand. No, there is nothing for me to live for. Each session would end ritualistically with his reminder to me, in a heartbreaking way though, that there's nothing that can be done to repair my life. Nothing that can fix my mind. Nothing that can be different. So that's what I lived with 
you know, that was the crack that he lived in that I had to try to join in. He confided in me that he had been given my name and number quite a long time ago, but he held on to the information for more than six months before reaching out. He explained to me that it was frightening to be with someone who would speak his native language. He was afraid of the longing that would be revived, as well as the inevitable disappointment that he would be at risk for if we were to get close. The promise of connection and closeness with a young woman from his home country, that promise was paired with the anticipation of how devastating it would be to not be recognized or understood by someone who was supposed to. So his solution to the longing and to the fear of disappointment was to deny me my humanity, to treat me like a non-person, and to withhold his humanity from me. Let me take a break and catch my breath, and when we come back, I will tell you more about the following years that Mr. Lay and I had together. All right? I'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello again, everyone. 
Yes, indeed, you can and should send me comments and questions or just talk to me <laughs> when we are, even when we're off the air. Before the break, I was uh, beginning to tell you about the fear of longing, the fear of being hurt again if you give in, if you step into the desire, the longing for connection with another person. And I was telling you about the solution that some people come to, which is to withhold their own humanity and to deny the other person's humanity so that there is less of a chance of being touched and of being hurt. With Mr. Lay, my patient from 15, 20 years ago, um, after two years of, of being together in therapy, two years where he would not fail to meet me every week, he finally shows some curiosity about me. Two years. And he asked me finally, where did you live in Vietnam? Now, astounding, isn't it, that this man in exile, isolated, living like a ghost among people who do not look like him, who do not speak his language, do not eat his kind of food. Here he was meeting every week and speaking with a woman who could be his daughter who speaks his native tongue, who would listen to his every word and track his every mood, would not dare or care to know anything of her personhood. I find it astounding that he would be so terrified of a personal intimate connection that he would avoid anything that would make me real, that would confront him with the reality of me as a human being because of what human beings could do to him. Where did you live in Vietnam? precious, fragile question that hung in the, hair, in the air. It turns out that he had spent his happy adolescence in my hometown. He knew it well. And then later on, he was stationed there at its American-built naval base. But he did not ask any further. There was a look at my face, then he turned away and changed the subject. He would not allow himself too much knowing. I would not be allowed to take too much shape even though there was the possibility of more connection, even though there was evidently, palpably, the desire for more. There was a subsequent incident that spoke to me further of his fear. I ran into him outside of my office um, after work as I was lighting a cigarette. <laughs> this was the days when before I had children and, you know, had a reason to, to, to live beyond 50. Um, and uh, was throwing myself into the work in a quite different way than I am now. So there I was lighting a cigarette, and he was absolutely stunned at the sight of me. Um, he asked about my smoking habits and after-work routine, and for a minute he looked and spoke and acted like a normal person, curious and excited, affectionate, although a little bit disapproving. He let me speak. He asked me questions about myself. He was addressing me as a person. And then suddenly something snapped off. His body became tense and his speech was less fluid and less familiar. He stopped smiling. Distance set in and he abruptly said goodbye. What had made him flee, do you think? Now, this is how I understood it. You know, smoking for, for Vietnamese women in our culture carries many connotations of lifestyle and upbringing and class. It's sometimes also sexualizing. It signals a life lived outside of conventions, suggests something different, something other. 
something that was more to know. And so for a wonderful moment, this man, ghost of a man, had collided into me as a living, breathing, sexualized being. The excitement and curiosity that I saw in a flash told me that he was still alive inside, that the desire for connection, the longing for closeness, and the curiosity about other human beings, all of that was still inside, but he was fighting to deaden it. He ran away because he could not bear knowing more about me, because knowing more would open the shaft to desire, old and new. Knowing more about me would make me real, would make me feel close. I mean, would make, would make him feel close or want to feel close to me. And it would allow him to trust and to let me love him. And that would put him at risk for loss or hurt or rejection. And so he had to preempt to abort the moment of closeness that was emerging between us. The possibility of more between us in order to um, protect himself from the pain of longing and losing. He was not dead, my patient. I knew that in that moment when he looked at me. But he was fighting to not be alive to his feelings, to not be alive in the connection with another human being because of all the dangers that that would carry. So I have to say, though, that after this encounter outside on the street, something opened up in him. It's called life. (laughs) He spoke to me about his internal conflict. He craved, he said to me, human contact but could not bear the countless discrepancies in needs and communications that abound in human interaction. He wishes, he wished for a female companion, but did not know how to manage the complexity, the contradictions, the reality of another person's needs and opinions and feelings. He had relatives, as I mentioned, in the area, but avoided contact with them because he could not bear being in the proximity of their, quote, normal, happy life. He had former army buddies throughout the U.S., but felt that it was futile to reconnect with them because there was no amount of time, no amount of language, no amount of love that could erase the suffering that they all had shared, and he could not bear to see them physically. He said, we're all just silent ghosts. Let it be. And so he limited himself to being with doctors, social workers, therapists, whose roles are clearly defined and with whom the rules of engagement are impersonal and unambiguous. And therefore, with these people in these relationships, desire and disappointment would be minimized. It is the dilemma of a man who longs for the warmth of the bonfire of human connection, you know, but who would will himself to stay in the dark, cold woods because he's afraid of being burned again by the fire of hurt and loss. He chose to exile himself from the communal pursuit of love in order to protect himself from possibly new suffering, new disappointment. Ghosts cannot be hurt because they are not seen or heard or touched. 
And what is the point of speaking and connecting, loving and letting oneself be touched and known and loved? What is the point? He finally said to me, I know things that you can't ever comprehend. I have seen too much. You have no idea how much I have seen, what I know. I can't ever tell anybody. There is no way that anybody, not even you, with your learning and expertise, can ever fully understand. You know, we humans, we are confirmed in our aliveness when we are loved. And when we love, we are alive because our minds are open to knowing, to curiosity. And our hearts are open to the quivers of desire and tenderness. Most of us step into the desire towards life, towards other human beings, even though we know of the risk, that, of the possibility that our desire might not be fully met. And we step into that desire also because of the discrepancy between what we know and what we have yet to have, what we want and what we have yet to have. Between, we're driven by the gap, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, the gap between what we wish for and what is there to discover, to be available to us. We are driven forward toward others because of the gap between what we need and what is yet to be found, to be offered, to be discovered with and in the other person. Most of us humans go on speaking communicating, expressing ourselves because of the gap between what we feel inside and what the other person cannot see or hear. Because of the need to bridge the gap between our private internal reality and what is externally recognizable by other human beings. And so we speak because we want to overcome, to erase, to bridge that gap between ourselves and others. That's what life is about. And we try to connect while knowing that full knowledge, that perfect communication is not possible, but we still try because it is worth it. Because we have no choice. Because otherwise, we are alone and we live a living death otherwise. But this man, this man who could be my father, my uncle, had been stripped of the illusion of the fragile faith about this possibility of connection. He knew too much, he said to me, too irrevocably of the impossibility of the futility of the pursuit for connection, for love. That place, that place of knowing too much, of having been forced to know about the cruelty of life and the futility of understand of, of, of speaking and trying to have love. That is the place where Mr. Lay lived. That is the place that he needed me to know about and to accept through his soliloquies about how meaningless and shitty life is. And so after more than three years of listening, I had to figure out what this was about. I had to will myself finally to hear his despair. I had to humble myself to accept the devastation of his heart and his mind. And 
I finally asked his permission um, for me to speak my soliloquy, to give him my expose um, about our experience, about my experience. So I said to him, and again, I'm I'm just paraphrasing here, um, something along the line of, you have been tossed into a whole different universe. Everyone else is over here on this one shore of life where things are normal and love and hope are possible and you are on the other side of life. I hear you tell me that you see no possibility of anyone being capable of finding a bridge to you, a crossing over to join you. Yes, you have lost everything. And yes, I believe you now. I believe and accept where you live I understand that you cannot let yourself have, that you want to have everything. I understand, I said, that that you don't want to have anything because what can you have now that would be tolerable in light of the devastations of your life? What is the point of trying to have anything when you live every day in the knowledge of what is not possible, of what can be lost? No repair can make up for what has been lost. No connection can restore what has been killed or who has been killed. So please forgive me for pushing you to step into life onto this shore where I live. For trying to hope, pushing you to try to hope and to love again. Forgive me to pressure you to do that. When you know so well all the ways in which your life and your mind have been lost. So that was my, my, my cry, my understanding, my taking a chance to reveal my insight to him after three and a half years mm-hmm. together. But, you know, for the first time, he did not contradict me or shoot me down. <laughs> Maybe I had found that bridge after all. Because for the first time, he did not speak in in contradiction. But his silence in this time was not a refusal. It was not a drawing up of the bridge. His silence in response to my disclosure was an acknowledgement, a looking at each other and acknowledging each other across the divide. In that silence, our difference was acknowledged, but without alienation, without protest. In that silence, I felt that we were saying to each other, I hear you, I see you. And I was saying to him, I cannot save you. I cannot do anything for or with you even in this life that remains. But I know that you exist. And it matters to me to know that you exist. You exist to me. Saying that, giving that to him to this other man, this other human being, seemed to make a difference. I would like to take a break now. And, um, you know, when we come back, I'll tell you about our last year together. All right? I'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com 
Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello again, everyone. So here we are, stepping into finishing up our fourth year together, this patient and I. Um, And as I said to you, something had happened. You know, life happened a little bit between us. And the light, the light of connection, uh, of talking and hearing each other seeped in a little bit. And I think it was because I was willing to step into my own wound, Mm. you know, to acknowledge the gash in myself of hopelessness and helplessness about him and acknowledged that and was willing to be in that with him. So Mr. Lay no longer in our fourth and final year together, he was no longer assailing me with his expose, you know, how meaningless um, the human connection would be or how futile um, it was to me to try. Instead, he talked about his wish to turn himself into stone and glass He told me about trying to reach for a non-human state where he would succeed in having no expectations and of needing no attachment. He wanted to will himself, his mind, into a state of having no desire and no memory. And he told me about feeling pain, about the hurt from longing and loneliness. 
in the beginning of our time together, he used to announce to me that, you know, I want nothing out of life. I'm just waiting to die and there's nothing that anyone can do for me. But now, four years later, he would painfully, with, with a sense of pleading, ask me, how am I going to get through the rest of the time that I have in this life? How? He would now share with me about how hard it was to wake up, to get himself ready for the day with no purpose and no connection. He would tell me that he was hurting from having nothing to live for. He told me that he wanted to belong, to make friends in his neighborhood, for example, men who would play chess and hang out and play guitar and so on, but did not know how to. He was physically alive, looked human and alive, but inside he said he was dead. So how to explain that to people? He had been living in the U.S. for over a quarter of the century, but did not feel at home here. And yet Vietnam, his motherland, would not recognize him or have him. So where to be? And the U.S., it's the land of his freedom, and yet he did not feel free. He said, there is hell inside. The thoughts, the memories, the fears, the wants, I'm not free of them, but I'm helpless before them. But the patient, I told you, had changed a little. He was no longer talking at me. You know, he, he was no longer seeking to convince me that he was not human or to deny that I was human and relevant and real to him. He was talking to me. He was looking at my face, listening to my words, appreciating my observations, and sharing with me his. And he asked questions, real, actual questions, questions that express a real desire to know and that indicated a reach for a real urgent quest. What was that quest? Let me paraphrase him again one last time in our one of our parting sessions. He said, I am now at peace. I accept what I have gone through. I'm not scurrying around like a rat looking for an exit from my life. I accept that we have no control in this life. We're born and we die. In between that, it's arbitrary. It's an illusion. Desire can never be satisfied. Money, sex, security prestige. We can lose all of that in a second for no reason that makes sense. I know that. You should wonder why I have not gone insane from all the things that I have gone through or why am I not going insane from where what I'm dealing with right now in my life. I'm okay. I'm alive. I'm peaceful. I know that we are all insignificant on this earth. The rich and the homeless are all the same. I know that and I'm not afraid to die. But I need to ask you, you need to help me figure this out. How do I get through this life from here on? What is the point now that I know all of this, now that I'm here? Um, at this point, you know, I, I, I was reminded, I'm still reminded of what Albert Camus, the, the French existentialist writer, uh, said he he wrote by the way uh, a short beautiful thing on the myth of Sisyphus that captures this question of Mr. Lay you know what to do how to go on um, but one another thing that Camus said is what is called a reason a reason for living is also an excellent reason for dying 
What does this mean? It means that, or this is what I take from it, you know, thanks to Mr. Lane also. For most of us, thinking, feeling, making meaning, finding purpose, being with people, exchanging thoughts, experiencing emotions, these things provide the fabric, the currents for our existence, the reason for living. For Mr. Lay, though, he wished to stop these things, to stop thinking and feeling because these things were unbearable burdens to him. He pleaded to be relieved of the things that we, the rest of us, rely on to live, to thrive, because these things made him want to stop being alive because it hurt so much, too much. This is how this man helped me understand the nature of survival. This is how I began, you know, 15 years ago, to hear the silent plea of survivors, of actually all of us who have been hurt, that it is unbearable to be alive after one has endured death. Coming back to ordinary life, to live among ordinary people, after you have traveled far into other realities, that is unbearable because there is no map, no companionship, no language that you can adopt and share with these other humans. This man told me about his four years in the communist re-education camp. He explained to me how he, what he had to do to survive the arbitrary acts of cruelty, to endure the unspeakable torture, to get over the grief of, of losing cellmates in execution after having bonded with them over shared meals that they improvised with, with grilled worms and bean sprouts that they had scavenged in the field. To survive all of that, he said, you just have to stop questioning, stop thinking about why, stop wanting and feeling. You have to stop thinking about what was going on and just try to exist like an animal. So it is understandable that it's unbearable to come back from that, to come back to being a human again, after you have trained yourself to live just like an animal. It would be unbearable for me to exist again among humans after having lived like an animal. That is what he and countless other people were trying to tell me in our intimate encounters. They were trying to show me the story of the aftermath of the blow, the story of survival, is the story about learning to erase your mind, to numb out your heart, to shut down your humanity, to survive. <laughs> it's a story about the impossibility that you feel that you have to live with, the impossibility of learning to love again after your heart has been ripped out of your ribcage, about the absurdity of learning to quote-unquote quote, cope with the demands of ordinary daily life after you had to leave everything behind, home and family, personal belongings, mother tongue, country, job, title, love. The story of survival is the story about the enormous fight against the sense of futility in, in trying to present a, a presentable, a functional self to other fellow human beings after yourself has been annihilated by human beings. 
That is the story of survival. There is nothing uplifting, right, or heroic about it. Well, actually, there is an enormous amount of heroism, but not in the sense that we in America tend to think of. The challenge for us, for the rest of us, their fellow human beings, is to hear the story, how we can hear this story. And this is the foundation of what I refer to on this show as the ethical responsibility of the ethical stance that I take, that I urge you all to take in this life towards fellow human beings, to let ourselves hear the wounds, to commit to finding the language in our hearts, in our own history of survival, a language that would allow us to receive the story, the reality, the truth that other human beings are attempting to share with us, to tell us. Because that is where the hope is, you know, just as the failure or the refusal to do that is also where the rewounding, the hurt, the abandoning can be repeated. We, you, I, we, we all have suffered loss and disappointment, but to a much lesser degree than Mr. Lay. But we all have known what it's like to lose, to be hurt, to be devastated by unpredictable turns of events, or to be brought to the edge of sanity by the cruelty or indifference of another person. We all have been there, all of us. But unlike Mr. Lay, we do not have to will ourselves into a state of, quote, existing like an animal. We're able to hold on to hope, curiosity, the desire for love, the need for more, the drive towards others. We're able to convey our despair in a way that allows others to give us a hand. We're able to hold on to faith, the faith that tomorrow can be different, that the next person will be a friend, that we can recover from another setback. This man was trying to show me despair and loss of faith. But by the very fact that he was speaking to me, he was showing that he sought to connect, that he desperately wanted to be heard, that, and, and, and he wanted me to join him in that story, in the witnessing, the sharing, the recognizing of that. You know, unless a person actually finally ends his life, unless he actually finally stops talking altogether, as long as the person speaks, as long as the person is alive, he is always telling the world something about himself, all right? He's always expressing a desire of some kind. And in that, he's holding forth some kind of hope that his words can reach someone. He holds on to some kind of faith that his story can land somewhere in other humans. Otherwise, he wouldn't speak, wouldn't leave his house, wouldn't go through the effort of staying psychically, physically alive and of speaking. That is why we all have the responsibility to listen to each other. That is why we can, we can, that is how we can help one another enormously, tremendously, by engaging with the truth that the other person is trying to express you know, in, in how, how we can commit to, to hear and to understand and to respect what the other person has known about life and is willing, wanting to share with us. 
We don't have to accept or agree or submit to the other person's truth. That's what I have learned from spending years listening to quote-unquote crazy people. (laughs) We humans do not require submission from fellow humans, but we need engagement, connection, a pact towards mutual empathy, a willingness to acknowledge our individual separate reality and to recognize our individual separately acquired truth. It takes a lot of damaging, pummeling of the heart and the soul to kill off curiosity and the desire for connection towards other human beings. Do feel sorry for those who seem cruel or incapable of kindness and empathy, but please just don't vote for them because somewhere along the way, they experience something terrible that justify the killing off of their humanness. But it also takes a lot of faith and courage to still seek out other human beings, to still hold on to the desire for connection when you have been ruthlessly or repeatedly devastated. That is why we need to remember how fragile, but also how intractable, you know, this human desire is about speaking and reaching other people. We should remember in order to protect it and honor it and cherish it so that we don't inadvertently inflict another wound from each other. That's why I said to you in the very first hour of this radio show, and I want to say it again, that's why kindness and tenderness are so important and so essential to the task of being human. We need to practice being kind. We need to dare to be tender in order to treat one another, in order to treat others as human. Our survival as a species, as a society, depends on it. Our beauty and the beauty of of our humanity is also born of that act, that practice of being responsible towards each other, of being kind and finding the tenderness towards each other. I would like to take leave of you now, and when I come back next week, I will continue on this and tell you about my encounter with other patients. All right? Take care, everyone. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.